Chapter 51 of Consuelo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Consuelo by George Sand. Chapter 51. The other inhabitants of the castle were by no means so tranquil. Amelia was furious and no longer deigned even to visit the invalid. She affected not to speak to Albert, never turned her eyes toward him, and never answered his morning and evening salutation. And the most provoking part of the affair was that Albert did not seem to pay the least attention to her vexation. The canoness, seeing the very evident and, as it were, declared passion of her nephew for the adventurous, had not a moment's peace. She racked her brains to find some means of putting a stop to the danger and scandal, and to this end she had long conferences with the chaplain. But the latter did not very earnestly desire the termination of such a state of things. He had for a long time past been useless and unnoticed amid the cares of the family. But since these new and agitating occurrences, his post had recovered a kind of importance, and he could at least enjoy the pleasure of spying, revealing, warning, predicting, consulting, in a word, moving the domestic interests at his will, while he had the air of not interfering and could hide himself from the indignation of the young count behind the old aunt's petticoats. Between them both, they continually found new subjects of alarm, new motives for precaution, but no means of safety. Every day the good Wenceslawa approached her nephew with a decisive explanation on the tip of her tongue, and every day a mocking smile or a freezing look caused the words to miscarry. Every instant she watched for an opportunity of slipping secretly into Consuelo's chamber in order to administer a skillful and firm reprimand but every instant Albert, as if warned by a familiar spirit, came to place himself upon the threshold of the chamber, and, by a single frown, like the Olympian Jupiter, he disarmed the anger and froze the courage of the divinities hostile to his beloved Elion. Nevertheless, the canoness had several times engaged the invalid in conversation, and as the moments when she could enjoy a tete-a-tete were very rare, she had profited by these occasions to address some very absurd reflections to her, which he thought exceedingly significant. But Consuela was so far removed from the ambition attributed to her that she understood nothing of it. Her astonishment and her air of candor and confidence immediately disarmed the good canoness, who, in all her life, could never resist a frank manner or a cordial caress. She hastened in confusion to confess her defeat to the chaplain, and the rest of the day was passed in planning measures for the morrow. In the meantime, Albert, divining this management very clearly, and seeing that Consuelo began to be astonished and uneasy, resolved to put a stop to it. One morning he watched Wenceslawa, as she passed, 
And while she thought to elude him by surprising Consuelo alone at that early hour, he suddenly appeared just at the moment when she was putting her hand to the key in order to enter the invalid's chamber. My good aunt, said he, seizing her hand and carrying it to his lips, I must whisper in your ears something in which you are very much interested. It is that the life and health of the person who reposes within are more precious to me than my own life and my own happiness. I know very well that your confessor has made it a point of conscience with you to thwart my devotion toward her and to destroy the effect of my care. Without that, your noble heart would never have conceived the idea of endangering, by bitter words and unjust reproaches, the recovery of an invalid, hardly yet out of danger. But since the fanaticism or bitterness of a priest can perform such prodigies as to transform the most sincere piety and the purest charity into blind cruelty, I shall oppose with all my power the crime of which my poor aunt consents to be made the instrument. I shall watch over my patient night and day, and no longer leave her for a moment. And if, notwithstanding my zeal, you succeed in carrying her away from me, I swear by all that is most sacred to human belief that I will leave the house of my fathers, never to return. I trust that when you have communicated my determination to the chaplain, he will cease tormenting you and combating the generous instincts of your affectionate heart. The amazed canonist could only reply to this discourse by melting into tears. Albert had led her to the end of the gallery, so that the explanation could not be heard by Consuelo. She complained of the threatening tone which Albert employed, and endeavored to profit by the occasion, to show him the folly of his attachment toward a person of such low birth as Nina. Aunt, replied Albert, smiling, you forget that if we are the royal blood of the Podiabrads, our ancestors were kings only through favor of the peasants and revolted soldiery. A Podiabrad, therefore, should not pride himself on his noble origin, but rather regard it as an additional motive to attach him to the weak and the poor, since it is among them that his strength and power have planted their roots, and not so long ago that he can have forgotten it. When Westalara related this conference to the chaplain, he gave it as his opinion that it would not be prudent to exasperate the young count by remonstrances, nor drive him to extremity by annoying his protege. It is to Count Christian himself that you must address your representation, said he. Your excessive delicacy has too much emboldened the sun. Let your wise remonstrances at length awaken the disquietude of his father, that he may take decisive measures with respect to this dangerous person. Do you suppose, replied the canoness, that I have not already done so? But alas, my brother has grown fifteen years older during the fifteen days of Albert's last disappearance. His mind is so enfeebled that it is no longer possible to make him understand any suggestion. He appears to indulge in a sort of passive resistance to the idea of a new calamity of this description, 
and rejoices like a child at having found his son and at hearing him reason and conduct himself as an intelligent man. He believes him cured of his malady and does not perceive that poor Albert is a prey to a new kind of madness, more fatal than the first. My brother's security in this respect is so great, and he enjoys it so unaffectedly that I have not yet found courage to open his eyes completely as to what is passing around him. It seems to me that this disclosure coming from you and accompanied with your religious exhortations would be listened to with more resignation, have a better effect, and be less painful to all parties. It is too delicate an affair, replied the chaplain, to be undertaken by a poor priest like me. It will come much better from a sister, and your highness can soften the bitterness of the event by expressions of tenderness, which I could not venture upon toward the august head of the Rudolstadt family. These two grave personages lost many days in deciding upon which should bell the cat. During this period of irresolution and apathy, in which habit also had its share, love made rapid progress in the heart of Albert. Consuelo's health was visibly restored, and nothing occurred to disturb the progress of an intimacy which the watchfulness of Argus could not have rendered more chaste and reserved than it was, simply through true modesty and sincere love. Meantime, the Baroness Amelia, unable to support her humiliation, earnestly entreated her father to take her back to Prague. Baron Frederick, who preferred a life in the forest to an abode in the city, promised everything that she wished, but put off from day to day the announcement and preparations for departure. The Baroness saw that it was necessary to urge matters on to suit her purpose, and devised one of those ingenious expedients in which her sex are never wanting. She had an understanding with her waiting maid, a sharp-witted and active young Frenchwoman, and one morning, just as her father was about to set out for the chase, she begged him to accompany her in a carriage to the house of a lady of their acquaintance, to whom she had for a long time owed a visit. The baron had some difficulty in giving up his gun and his powder horn to change his dress in the employment of the day, but he flattered himself that this condescension would render Amelia less exacting and that the amusement of the drive would dissipate her ill-humor and enable her to pass a few more days at the castle of the giants without murmuring. When the good man had obtained a respite of a week, he fancied he had secured the independence of life. His forethought extended no further. He therefore resigned himself to the necessity of sending sapphire and panther to the kennel, while Attila the hawk turned upon its perch with a discontented and mutinous air, which forced a heavy sigh from its master. The baron at last seated himself in the carriage with his daughter, and in three revolutions of the wheel was fast asleep. The coachman then received orders from Amelia to drive to the nearest post-house. They arrived there after two hours of a rapid journey, and when the baron opened his eyes, he found post-horses in his carriage and everything ready to set out on the road to Prague.
What means this? exclaimed the baron. Where are we? And whither are we going? Amelia, my dear child, what folly is this? What is the meaning of this caprice, or rather this pleasantry, with which you amuse yourself? To all her father's questions, the young baroness only replied by repeated bursts of laughter and by childish caresses. At length, when she saw the postillion mounted and the carriage roll lightly along the highway, she assumed a serious air and in a very decided tone spoke as follows. My dear papa, do not be uneasy. All our luggage is carefully packed. The carriage trunks are filled with all that is necessary for our journey. There is nothing left at the castle of the giants except your dogs and guns, which will be of no use at Prague. And besides, you can have them when you wish to send for them. A letter will be handed to Uncle Kirsten at breakfast, which is so expressed as to make him see the necessity of our departure without unnecessarily grieving him or making him angry either with you or me. I must now humbly beg your pardon for having deceived you, but it is nearly a month since you consented to what I at this moment execute. I do not oppose your wishes, therefore, in returning to Prague. I merely chose a time when you did not contemplate it, and I would wager that, after all, you were delighted to be freed from the annoyance which the quickest preparations for departure entail. My position became intolerable, and you did not perceive it. Kiss me, dear papa, and do not frighten me with those angry looks of yours. In thus speaking, Amelia, as well as her attendant, stifled a great inclination to laugh, for the baron never had an angry look for anyone, much less for his cherished daughter. He only rolled his great bewildered eyes, a little stupefied, it must be confessed, by surprise. If he experienced any annoyance at seeing himself fooled in such a wise, and any real vexation at leaving his brother and sister without bidding them adieu, he was so astonished at the turn things had taken that his uneasiness changed into admiration of his daughter's tact, and he could only exclaim, But how could you arrange everything so that I had not the least suspicion? Faith, I little thought when I took off my boots and sent my horse back to the stable that I was off for Prague and that I should not dine today with my brother. It is a strange adventure, and nobody will believe me when I tell it. But where have you put my traveling cap, Amelia? Who could sleep in a carriage with this hat glued to one's ears? Here it is, dear papa, said the merry girl, presenting him with his fur cap, which he instantly placed on his head with the utmost satisfaction. But my bottle, you have certainly forgotten it, you little wicked one. Oh, certainly not, she exclaimed, handing him a large crystal flask, covered with Russia leather and mounted with silver. I filled it myself with the best hungry wine from my aunt's cellar. But you had better taste it yourself. I know it is the description you prefer. And my pipe and pouch of Turkish tobacco. Nothing is forgotten, said Amelia's maid. His Excellency the Baron will find everything packed in the carriage. Nothing has been omitted to enable him to pass the journey agreeably. Well done, said the Baron, filling his pipe. 
but that does not clear you of all culpability in this matter, my dear Amelia. You will render your father ridiculous and make him the laughing stock of everyone. Dear Papa, it is I who seem ridiculous in the eyes of the world when I apparently refuse to marry an amiable cousin who does not even deign to look at me and who, under my very eyes, pays assiduous court to my music mistress. I have suffered this humiliation long enough, and I do not think there are many girls of my rank, my age, and my appearance who would not have resented it more seriously. Of one thing I am certain, that there are girls who would not have endured what I have done for the last 18 months, but, on the contrary, would have put an end to the farce by running off with themselves if they had failed in procuring a partner in their flight. For my part, I am satisfied to run off with my father. It is a more novel as well as more proper step. What think you, dear papa? Why, I think the devil's in you, replied the baron, kissing his daughter, and he passed the rest of his journey gaily, drinking, eating, and smoking by turns, without making any further complaint or expressing any further astonishment. This event did not produce the sensation in that family at the castle of the giants, which the little baroness had flattered herself it would do. To begin with, Count Albert, he might have passed a week without noticing the absence of the young baroness, and when the canoness informed him of it, he merely remarked, This is the only clever thing which the clever Amelia has done since she set foot here. As to my good uncle, I hope he will soon return to us. For my part, said old Count Christian, I regret the departure of my brother, because at my age one reckons by weeks and days. What is not long for you, Albert, is an eternity for me, and I am not so certain as you are of seeing my peaceful and easy-tempered Frederick again. Well, it is all Amelia's doings, added he, smiling as he threw aside the saucy yet cajoling letter of the young baroness. Women's spite pardons not. You were not formed for each other, my children, and my pleasant dreams have vanished. While thus speaking, the old count fixed his eyes upon the countenance of his son, with a sort of melancholy satisfaction, as if anticipating some indication of regret. But he found none, and Albert, tenderly pressing his arm, made him understand that he thanked him for relinquishing a project so contrary to his inclination. "'God's will be done,' ejaculated the old man, "'and may your heart, my son, be free. "'You are now well, happy, and contented among us.' I can now die in peace, and a father's love will comfort you after our final separation. Do not speak of separation, dear father, exclaimed the young count, his eyes suddenly filling with tears. I cannot bear the idea. The canoness, who began to be affected, received at this moment a significant glance from the chaplain, who immediately rose and with feigned discretion left the room. This was the signal and the order. She thought, not without regret and apprehension, that the moment was at length come when she must speak, and closing her eyes, like a person about to leap from the window of a house on fire, she thus began, 
stammering and becoming paler than usual. Certainly Albert loves his father tenderly and would not willingly inflict on him a mortal blow. Albert raised his head and gazed at his aunt with such a keen and penetrating look that she could not utter another word. The old count appeared not to have heard this strange observation, and in the silence which followed, poor Wenceslawa remained trembling beneath her nephew's glance, like a partridge fascinated before the pointer. But Count Christian, rousing from his reverie after a few minutes, replied to his sister as if she had continued to speak, or as if he had read in her mind the revelation she was about to make. Dear sister, said he, if I may give you an advice, it is not to torment yourself with things which you do not understand. You have never known what it was to love, and the austere rules of a canoness are not those which befit a young man. Good God, murmured the astonished canoness, either my brother does not understand me, or his reason and piety are about to desert him. Is it possible that in his weakness he would encourage or treat lightly? How, aunt, interrupted Albert in a firm tone and with a stern countenance. Speak out, since you are forced to it. Explain yourself clearly. There must be an end to this constraint. We must understand each other. No, sister, you need not speak, replied the count. You have nothing new to tell me. I understand perfectly well, without having seemed to do so, what has been going on for some time past. The period is not yet come to explain ourselves on that subject. When it does, I shall know how to act. He began immediately to speak on other subjects, and left the canonists astonished, and Albert hesitating and troubled. When the chaplain was informed of the manner in which the head of the family received the counsel, which he had indirectly given him, he was seized with terror. Count Christian, although seemingly irresolute and indolent, had never been a weak man, and sometimes surprised those who knew him by suddenly arousing himself from a kind of somnolency and acting with energy and wisdom. The priest was afraid of having gone too far and of being reprimanded. He commenced, therefore, to undo his work very quickly and persuaded the canonists not to interfere further. A fortnight glided away in this manner without anything suggesting to Consuelo that she was a subject of anxiety to the family. Albert continued his attentions and announced the departure of Amelia as a short absence but did not suffer her to suspect the cause. She began to leave her apartment, and the first time she walked in the garden, the old Christian supported the tottering steps of the invalid on his weak and trembling arm. End of chapter 51